0: He's got his hat on again. There's He's the hat. his hat on again. have just been out for a dog walk. Take your hat off.
1: No, because... Well, that's nonsense. It's not nonsense, because I now have ha- hat hair, and I don't like having hat
0: hair. It's off. like saying,
2: well, keep, keep the lead in your hand, then. I would never reveal my hat hair, should there be a choice of a hat, hat or oh. hat hair.
0: I bet you're hot now, but you're getting hot now, aren't you?
1: I just, well, I'm not... I, I, do you want to know why I'm wearing this jumper? The fleece, or the... <laughs> the fleece, the fleece. Yeah, OK. So, tell us. Ed, my son... Is a, yes, we know that, yeah. yeah. is He is my son, and he is a the bit latest. of a, he's kind of a, unlike me, but like his mother, he's like a fastidious dresser. So he has this big psychological block on wearing any colour of trouser that is not blue, black, or grey,
0: right. which
1: ironically are the three acceptable colours of trouser <laughs> for men. Any other type of trousers? I've been told that, Nikki
0: said to me, I have to go, I
1: get to mid-50s, you have to start wearing raspberry trousers. Raspberry and mustard.
0: Mustard. In Portugal, you can get away with them, but not in this country.
1: I I would accept khaki. Yellow? As as an acceptable colour. Mustard? Um, No. Brown in certain... Would you wear a brown that's not khaki? Probably not. Rust. Mushroom coloured, maybe? Mm -hmm. Um, That's
2: virgin on brown, so...
1: It's getting close to brown. Depends You're what saying a of lot mushroom. of brown
2: colours. <laughs> uh,
1: so the three the three main colours, the three acceptable colours of trousers are blue, black and grey. Yeah. Borderline colours that I'm prepared to tolerate. Sort of nice olive green and a subtle a subtle green, quite a bluey green and a deep dark green and khaki. They're fine. Where are three, we going
2: with this? Three types of green. Where are we going with this? You only did one so, type of blue and you've done three types of green. <laughs>
1: well, blue is a broad, you know, that, any shade of blue, basically, apart from Portillo blue, is fine. <laughs> but anyway, so Edwin will, will only wear blue, grey or black trousers. But because he is, he is going through the, um, the important rites of potty training at the moment, uh-huh. he, he's going through trousers at quite a rate, as you can imagine. So this morning, we Sit had to put brown. him in his pair, <laughs> that's a good point, actually. We had to put him in a pair of green trousers that he's got that he doesn't like.
0: Ooh. So he
1: said to me, so he was getting dressed, Daddy, will you wear green trousers today? Yep. And I said, yeah, and he was wearing his grey fleece, is it cold? And he said, will you wear a grey fleece today? So I said, yeah. So I've dressed effectively as Ed for the yes. day yep. to make him feel comfortable. That's why I'm so wearing this that, fleece. Well, let's, let's see your trousers then. Well, they're sort of a, they're a bluey, as I say, that are one of the only acceptable shades of green. Hang on. You see? They're quite... Dark. They are, they're, they're, they're not far off blue, but they are. They are green. They look black. They're not black. That's you being colourblind, James. <laughs>
2: no, no, no. They look really dark. Hugh, they look yes. dark trouser, didn't they? The 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 aspect made them uh, appear black.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're not black. I can assure you, them. They're, they're not. They're not a hundred percent green. So but they're greenish.
0: What happens if Ed decides he wants to wear a tutu in the future? Are you going to have to then wear a man size tutu to keep him company? If he
1: wants me to, yeah, that's fine. If that's oh, what he feels comfortable in, that'd it's not be a problem. worth seeing. That would be worth seeing. I don't think we need to. You know, yeah, he can wear whatever he likes.
2: It's a very outdated uh, choice of negative clothing for a young boy. Yeah. There, Gene. come on, Chinch. come on.
1: No, I was just twenty-two, trying to say something
2: twenty-two.
0: relatively extravagant. A tutu. What else could he wear? Like a clown's costume. A clown's would costume. you say, two, right? Gigantic, you go, Daddy. Can you dress? Can you dress like a clown, please? A gigantic
1: you... Carmen Miranda fruit hat. What are you doing? You're googling. I'm googling internet's B test.
2: Oh, how oh, is it today? Again.
1: 44 megabits download. That is fast. Super fast. Upload. Yeah. Not quite as good. Yeah, upload Free. is
2: what we need. We need upload. Free? Yeah. All this, all this broadcasting. All this nonsense, yeah. Is all upload. Now that everyone's got a podcast. Every song I is, it quite, is it quite nice Andy. to be doing this of an evening, though? is it quite, is it good?
1: Yeah. Are you is not it wearing it... trousers? <laughs> I am wearing trousers. Okay. It's not well. I thought if we were doing After I'm Dark. Wearing trousers. I'm sitting
0: on a caramel leather chair. I'm not going to here with my hairy bottom out, am
1: you I? Couldn't, you couldn't. You can't be sitting trouserless on a leather chair. That oh is, no, that's sticky. That is, that's exactly. Business. So I wouldn't do it unless I put a God. towel.
0: So put a towel down,
1: maybe. Put a towel down, I and mean, that rather ruins the kind of the coolness <laughs> of it, doesn't it? It's a I'm going to sit trouserless on this leather chair, but let me just put my towel down first.
2: This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Farish. Joining me are Rory Smith, as sweet as a Turkish delight, and Andy Hinchcliffe, as sweaty as a Turkish bath. Um, Stephen is not with us this week. As uh, what? the recording time agreed, he was forced at the last minute to go to Burnley. That is not a euphemism. Oh, have um, we verified this? Just, uh, just the fact that he is gloriously materialistic and wanted the money. Uh, which is a choice that we should all be making, really. Uh, Indeed, as lockdown engulfs us all once more and we find ourselves needing to variously homeschool, work a little harder to get work and remember to wash more than once a week. You can pick who that refers to. We ask for your understanding as we pick our way through the return of the exceptional circumstances. Hopefully it will not affect our ongoing weekly offering. Uh, As we know through so many of you mentioning it in correspondence over the last, what, 11 months now, uh, that it does at least have some value to you, although it may well force a few little changes as it has done this week in terms of personnel and also logistically. Uh, so, thank you for your understanding and patience. The food is, as Roy mentioned, we are after dark. And for the first time, I think, ever, we are post dinner. So, would anybody mm. like to tell us about their. I've not had my dinner yet. I'm oh, still. Not had to, not, are you waiting? No, I'm having my beef stew and dumplings in a bit. You are what? so European, Chinch. No,
1: no, I'm I just hungarian. Think, if he's oh, having beef stew and a dumpling. Yeah. <laughs> homemade,
0: homemade, though. Homemade again, as
1: usual. Not by uh, me. We've also had dumplings this evening. <gasps> but with a carrot and sweet potato cobbler. We're going to say it's prawn delicious. dumplings from the local Chinese takeaway. No, no. Absolutely not. The no. local Chinese take- takeaway chinch is shut because everything is shut. Uh, uh, what oh, no. No, yeah. we? no, it isn't. Some, so, Yeah, some places, are, some, takeaways is, some takeaways have decided, certainly around here, have decided that they are not prepared to to take the risk and have therefore ah, closed
2: okay and also you need to remember that Andy Hitchcliffe is not playing a football game in the near vicinity so therefore will not be needing their services
1: certainly in in, in the North Cheshire area imagine the <laughs> demand for chicken Pro collapsed after your retirement <laughs> is there a European game on get the pro in just in case
2: <laughs> uh, the football is chinch do you know what we're talking about today
0: um if I did It'd only disappoint you. So, um, is it the one the that begins with P and ends in pragmatism? Are we doing <laughs> we that
2: are. one? Is yes. it? Is it that one this week? Yes. Just oh, I keep you're
0: right. Uh, An uh, right example for once.
2: of uh, very poor hosting. I posed a question during our conversation about Leeds last week about pragmatism, which we never actually got around to answering. No. Uh, the reason it was posed briefly was because we wanted to let a piece by known Rory adversary, Jonathan Wilson, have a little bit more time in the sun, unsullied by Rory's claims that he actually had the idea first. Well, a further week has passed, so we don't care about that anymore. And we're going to talk about pragmatism and whether it means what we thought it meant before. You can get in touch with the podcast at peace at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Um, In the absence of any serious offers of sponsorship forthcoming from any retail outlets in any territory, we have another suggestion from John Wood in California. And if you had had any shred of belief left after last week that John wasn't pulling our legs over the whole affair, that will now disappear. Dear boys who like boys who do girls who like boys. Okay, he says, my cousin has another idea on sponsorship. He, his name's Ned apparently, has moved to a small Midwestern town called Springfield and is opening a shoe store and not only wants to be a sponsor of his favorite pod, but would like to offer Andy a deal to be the spokesperson. The Ooh. shop is called my left boot and he really hopes it will have crossover appeal. His two sons, Rod and Todd. Uh, there's the game changer. We'll yeah. be in touch soon with all the financial details. Oakley Doakley, as my cousin likes to say, my work is done. John Wood Huntington Beach, California. Thanks, John. The jig is up and uh, our search responses continues.
1: I mean, the previous one wasn't real. Hell, Michigan is a place, no? Yes, yes. Yeah. We did our due diligence on that element of it. <laughs> Look, if people are going to target us with malicious falsehoods, there's a limit to what we can do. We don't so have I, a get,
0: I was getting my hopes up there as well, thinking I could be. I'd be an excellent spokesman, wouldn't I? Yeah, you wouldn't want to use the face. You'd only want the, the voice, wouldn't you? You'd no, you you his face in front of any shop.
1: Do you, do you blame that for the failure of those weird gold boots?
0: It can't really be failure if... Because I never actually wore them. But you did promote Paolo Paulo Ducanio was the only gold boot wearer that could get away with it. I would... They, they were only a, a marketing tool, uh, which failed miserably.
2: Uh, where are they? I wonder what happened to them. I'm really disappointed you didn't keep the Kronos boots, just in case it was real gold. And I kept kept any it. of my boot I've got, why, why didn't I keep...
0: I haven't
1: kept any of them. Ate his own sons. How many of them? Oh, I think he ate all of them. I think he did ah. it as, like a force of habit. Yeah, but how many of them were there? Like, tonnes. Did he have a big he was, family? Yeah, well, he, no, well he, did. he ate them all. He
0: did, he did, yeah. The, yeah,
1: um, yeah I, I, one of my favourite things in the world, is, this will also appeal to Hugh, is poorly chosen classical names where people choose them to look pretty, they sound pretty, or in Kronos's case, kind of intimidating and grand. But actually, they mean something incredibly sinister. <laughs>
2: Were you aware of the? Uh, Would the, you like to meet my uh, son, Oedipus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Meanwhile, <laughs> here's your mother. <laughs> was Was
0: I aware of the connotations of, of Kronos?
1: Did you know that? Yeah. Uh,
0: no, no. I think Andy Booth. I think Andy Booth tried to warn me off, but I, I just wasn't listening to him. You know, yeah, I, I mean, was... Andy,
1: I've read Booth's um, critique of the Iliad actually, and it is searing. It's a searing. Searing, critique. is it? Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I always thought he had that in him. Our search for, for sponsorship, then, uh, brings us to Noah Knopf, or Knopf, depending on how silent he wants his K to be, who writes from Milton in Massachusetts. Dear Monica, Joey Chandler, and Trigger. Who's, who's Trigger? Trigger He's was the, the uh, janitor. Yeah, yeah, the janitor of the building in which the friends live. I, I hate friends. The so
1: programme if- and the concept.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, we're colleagues more than friends, aren't we? Your podcast <laughs> is good, says Noah. My friends and I are a group of idiots and we recently decided to start our own football podcast. There are a lot of exclamation marks in this email. It really was quite easy, says Noah. We know that you're looking for sponsors and we're wondering if we can become the football podcast sponsor of your football podcast.
1: That's an excellent idea.
2: We will make you look good by comparison and prevent your listeners from ever taking your wonderful work for granted. Our programme is called the Emergency Left Back Podcast. Uh, Thanks from Noah. The emergency left back is that, is that a thing?
1: You you can have. I think that is an accepted football phrase. I think you you occasionally will hear after a sending off or during an injury crisis, you will hear somebody who's been drafted in, and they might in 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 more downbeat circumstances be described as a makeshift le- left back. Yes, yes. Um, but I think in in high stakes games, they might well be described as emergency left backs. Do you hear the word makeshift? Anywhere other than football?
2: I think
0: anything
1: you describe-
2: that makeshift defence, makeshift back four, yes. Yeah, Put it in front free, of a yeah, term that's yeah, not to yeah, do with yeah. football. I think I can makeshift have a... leaf blower. A makeshift spice <laughs> shelf. <laughs> makeshift leaf blower.
1: <laughs> I don't know if you do. I think makeshift, makeshift, makeshift... How has nobody come up with, like, makeshift as a website, domain name, podcast? Like, that's the obvious one. We should change set-piece menu to makeshift.
2: Next question. Do you ever have an apparition that isn't ghostly? No. Well, it
1: kind of goes with the territory, doesn't
2: it? Why do you need the word
1: ghostly? It's bordering on tautologists, ghostly apparition. Can an apparition be non-ghostly? There's no such thing as a tropical apparition. Do
2: you know what I mean? Tropical? Well, the big question is, is there a makeshift apparition? Uh, Next to a couple of emails relating to last week's part about Leeds, here's Jack Goodman, who describes himself as a disgruntled Yorkshireman and Leeds fan, exiled to Leicestershire. Dear Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Lala and Poe. Poe. Insert generic praise of the pod here. I joke, but in seriousness, it's been a lovely distraction during a challenging and often lonely <laughs> year. As a Leeds fan, I particularly enjoyed your discussion around why everyone is talking about Leeds, especially Rory's comments on how Leeds are basically a culture war. I think that epitomizes perfectly the number of people who enjoy what Bielsa is doing and the number of people who are keen to see him fail. I also thought your comments on the Karen Carney tweet were a good discussion. I, along with what I believe is a majority of fans, felt the club wading in was unnecessary. However, I think the frustration fans feel isn't with criticism of the club, clearly a break in the season is going to benefit a side who play a high intensity style of football. It's more with lazy punditry. I don't think Karen Carney's comments were lazy per se, and I appreciate the difficulties of live broadcasting under time constraints. But I think the issue fans had was saying that Leeds won the league because of Covid rather than benefited from the break or words to that effect. Pedantic perhaps, but I feel it's a build up of a lot of lazy comments made by certain pundits, not chinch, around Leeds playing. Leeds are a busted flush. Bielsa is a myth. They'll burn out throwaway comments with no thought behind them. Even in the Burnley game Chinch and Steve were speaking about, TV coverage talked about how Bielsa had changed his style to three at the back after the Manchester United defeat, when in reality, Calvin Phillips regularly drops into form a third centre-back whenever Leeds come up against a team playing two strikers. Perhaps it's nitpicking and pedantic, but I think the reason Leeds fans feel so frustrated by certain criticism is the build-up of lazy comments that we've heard from certain pundits commentating on the team this season saying that the 3-0 defeat to Crawley in the FA Cup was embarrassing and we deserve all the criticism we get for that performance keep up the good work it's keeping me and I'm sure many other people sane during this bizarre time and uh, that's from Jack Goodman. Well this
0: is why Leeds should be really good for pundits because you they're such an interesting well the, the coach is very interesting <clears throat> the style of play and the club itself so it gives you the opportunity to really try and understand exactly what's going on and explain it really well. So it's an opportunity. So the, the laziness attached to, again, whether people are thinking saying else is a myth, people jump on that and saying, yeah, that, that sounds good. We'll go along with that. But they, if you can't explain that, that doesn't make any sense at all. But I think it's a great opportunity for decent pundits.
1: If you do your homework, leads are, uh, at the moment, one of the best teams to actually talk about. I, I would like to, to make a slight counter argument. So I, I don't agree with what Karen Carney said. I, I don't think that's right. And I th- what I did what, she actually say? What was what she actually said was that she did say that Leeds won the lead because of COVID. I think you can. It's safe to assume she's a really she's a really intelligent woman, is Karen, and she's a good pundit. So she. I think it's probably fair to say she misspoke. She didn't quite mean to say they won the lead because of COVID. She meant to say, as Jack says, that they were maybe assisted in winning the lead by the break caused by the pandemic, which is is not something I necessarily agree with, but it's a valid, like coherent point. But a lot, you saw a lot of the reaction to, so you had the reaction from Leeds, from the fans, then the club itself weighed in. And then a, a lot of it was, was based on, those, on that same theme that Leeds are kind of sick of the lazy punditry trope of, you know, Bielsa's teams get tired. And the thing is, and I say this as a kind of devout Bielcister, there's a reason that people think his teams get tired and it's because in the past, some of his teams have got tired and it doesn't happen every time. And, it, and it, you can make a case that it's not happened at Leeds at all. Obviously, didn't it, it's not a chance to happen this season. It didn't happen last season. You can maybe wonder if it was a factor at, at points in, the, in his first season at Leeds. But it definitely happened at Marseille. It was definitely part of the problem at Marseille. I think Bill, his Bilbao team faded a little bit there seems to be like a demographic of people who are so loyal to Bielsa that they're not prepared to tolerate any mention at all of the idea that that his teams might burn out or might fade in the second half of the season. But that's true of literally every team that plays a really high press intensive style, that, there, that the risk is, the payoff is, that they they have to conserve their energy. And there is an argument that that actually playing that way conserves energy in a different way to what we expect. And it's all slightly counterintuitive. But there is a genuine concern there about quite a lot of high pressing teams. I don't think it's... I don't think it's lazy in itself to wonder if Leeds can sustain it over the course of a season. I, d- I just don't think that's lazy. I think that's a valid thing to to at least wonder about. You can conclude that, that actually there's no reason to worry about it and that they won't, but it's a valid question, just as it's a valid question of Bayern and it's a valid question of Liverpool and it's a valid question of literally every team in the Bundesliga.
2: So you're saying that she she wasn't right with what she said, but she was trying to make a more nuanced point, which is valid.
1: There's no right or wrong. I don't agree with the assertion that that Leeds were assisted in winning the lead by the break. I think Leeds would have won the lead anyway because they were the best team in the championship.
2: So two things could be true.
1: Two things can be true, but also quite
2: right, but also there is an issue that is worth discussing.
1: But I also don't agree with the immediate shutting down of any discourse at all over whether Bielsa's teams suffer from tiredness at any point, because it is it's that's a genuine thing to that's not, it's not lazy to wonder if Bielsa's teams might drift a little bit as the season goes on. That's that's you can't, you can't cover any team, you
0: can't have any preconceived ideals. All these all these um, points come into your thinking and then you say, well, I'll apply that to what I'm seeing in front of me or what's happened in the last 10 games or since the start of the season. And you see whether it's true or not. You don't say it must be true because it has happened or hasn't happened in the past. You have to do that every club that you look at. You've got to be sensible in, in any, any preconditions for any coach, any, any style of play, any team is really dangerous. Because if you say, well, it must be the case, it's happened before or it hasn't happened before. It's happening now. And I'll try and find a way of, of explaining that or crowbarring it in. Very, very dangerous.
2: We are familiar with Cameron Hill and his irreverent contributions. But here's something of extra substance for us to consider. Uh, dear gold, frankincense, myrrh and seven England caps. That's more than gold? better than gold certainly better better than than gold gold boots platinum platinum I wanted to give some of my thoughts on last week's pod on the buzz around Leeds this year, particularly around Rory's point early in the discussion concerning the lack of any interesting talking points coming from the other Premier League clubs so far this season. I think it's worth comparing the portrayal of Marcelo Bielsa by the media to that of Jurgen Klopp over the previous few seasons. Whereas Klopp tends to appear much more open and transparent with the media, I think Bielsa's use of a translator serves as perhaps a subconscious barrier between the manager and the public. I'm not at all suggesting that Bielsa's lack of English is a negative quality, but surely having to always pass words through an interlocutor locutor affects his apparent proximity to the fans. Separately, and despite what Chinch may contend, Bielsa does have a mythological presence in the Premier League, much more so than Klopp or the others. To use Klopp as an example, his path to success at Liverpool has been easy to track. All of his victories and defeats have been well covered in the media, and therefore his managerial track record is widely known by both the English and European mainstream football fandom. The same could be said of Guardiola, Mourinho, and, of course, Sean Dyche. Bielsa's successes, on the other hand, have mostly occurred off stage, so to speak. His tenures at South American and European clubs may not be common knowledge to those who generally stick to watching the Premier League. So evidence of his pedigree may appear more anecdotal. Moreover, his famous mentoring of Pep and the praise showered upon him by other managers in the league creates a narrative around him that the average fan may find rather enticing. To put it another way, he's like Tony Blundetto or other similar characters in The Sopranos, idolised by Tony, Sill and the boys, who wax lyrical about their glorious past, but for us simpletons at home, he's just another character who we know very little about, therefore we see his capacity for unpredictability and chaos as an attractive prospect. That is the Steve Buscemi character, by the way, uh, in um, The Sopranos. In short, while I'm not calling Bielsa the anti-clop. I think he has come along at precisely the right moment when the media have well and truly squeezed Klopp for all he's worth story-wise and there are no really compelling alternatives. Thanks and keep up the stellar work. Sincerely, Cameron Hill.
1: That's a really good point. That, so the, the, I think what I was trying to drive out last week and I, I, was, I probably didn't do very really well is that it feels to me like with all of the big six, which dominate so much of the kind of the, the discussion landscape, that there isn't really a compelling story there that we haven't heard a lot before. Liverpool's story is kind of over almost. They've they won the league and all right now they're trying to win the league again, but that's not, that isn't as good a story. Liverpool trying to retain the title is not as good a story as Liverpool win lead for the first, first time in 30 years. City, if I'm completely honest and I don't mean this necessarily as a as a criticism of them, if anything it's it's a compliment. City are actually quite boring. United is the United are interesting, but it, they're interesting in exactly the same way they have been for the last 2 years and possibly longer. Arsenal, same really, Chelsea are probably the most interesting of the top six, maybe Mourinho, Mourinho at Spurs, the, the, there's not much else to grab hold of, to be honest, and I think that's where Leeds step in. But there was one point we, we didn't make last week that we should have done, which is that I think the other thing about Bielsa that makes him, makes him such an easy kind of lightning rod is he's not won anything or he's not won anything that we recognise as valid, you know, he, for all that winning, winning the, the Apertura with New Orleans Old Boys in the early 1990s was a tremendous achievement. It's probably fair enough that the, the, you know, the average English football fan in 2021 isn't thinking, well, he did it in, you know, he did it in Rosario in 1992, so I'm sure he can do it in Leeds. And that, but that, the fact that he, he gets all that praise whilst not having the trophy cabinet actually challenges the way we think about football and the way we think about, merit and what people deserve and what, how reputations are made. I think to a lot of people, it, it is probably slightly myst, mystifying that this coach who's never won anything noteworthy has this reputation that, the, that makes him not just the equal of, but superior to Guardiola and Pochettino and all of these others. And I think that is a, is, a, is a really significant part of why he's such a either good talking point or such a kind of, in a certain sense, like divisive figure
0: has a biography ever been written of Marcelo Bielsa? Has he, has he done any writing himself? You know, to, to actually find his view of all this, of himself, has he ever done anything like that?
1: I don't know if, he, I don't know if he's written anything, um, but Tim Rich's biography of him, uh, which is called.
2: Man, the twa- looks, which is, at man looks at bookshelf.
1: <laughs> to remember. Yeah. It, it, which is called the quality of madness. And he's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, is is well worth reading. You can that... borrow. Would you like me to send me, send you my copy, Chinch? Um, would you like that yeah. if I wrapped it up with a pretty bow? If you could, please. Yes, please. Yeah, striped paper. Christmas wrapping
2: castoffs like everybody <laughs> oh, else. Oh, really? I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Freshly bought, by the way, in the sales. Uh, but yeah, the, the title of that from Tim Rich hints at what you're talking about. The, the, the quality of madness and the, the relative values of things like being a renegade are things that can sometimes mean as much to people as just winning trophies. But um, is, is Bielsa mad or a renegade? I think he's probably... Well, this is what there. we're going to come on to, isn't it? <laughs> yes. We're going to come... Beautifully teased, Chinch. Thanks. Can you, can you remember that? I didn't even mean to do that. It's just a natural flow we've got. You, you are a genius. Finally, to a Chinch-related missive from Sinan Eccles in response to our Christmas two-parter on Nostalgia. As a fan of both set piece menu and back to the future, your musings on how Chinch would fare in bygone eras has provided a welcome distraction to me in between manning the COVID wards at my hospital over recent months. An important variable you haven't touched upon in detail is the mechanism by which Chinch would find himself in the past. It is taken as read that he would have had 1990s levels of fitness and technique, but it is unclear whether this would have developed within Chinch, despite being born and living in a bygone era, or if a modern Chinch had been transported back in a DeLorean or wandered up a Goodnight Sweetheart-style street. That's a very niche reference for all those people who like 1990s sitcoms in the UK. The difference is important as it would determine Chinch's awareness of Chinese food. I would hypothesize that if growing up in the bygone era, the relative lack of availability of Chinese food in Britain, certainly outside of London until well after World War Two and Chinch's lack of awareness of the cuisine would mean improved levels of concentration during the latter stages of matches, enabling him to thrive. However. If a 90s chinch was transported back, fully aware of the existence of Chinese food, knowing that it would not be accessible post-match, I'm assuming he's mm. sticking around rather than freely traveling back and forth between eras, I fear that his consciousness would be haunted by this knowledge, possibly destroying his concentration and indeed his career. Essentially, chinch's nostalgicizing for noodles would destroy him. Congratulations <laughs> on the excellent podcast. Please keep it up. That's from Sinan Eccles. Correspondence of any kind to menu at gmail.com. I,
1: I find it slightly troubling that someone in a job that important, manning COVID wards at a hospital, is listening to this. So, Sinan, please, please
2: stop. Uh, now, so as mentioned without conclusion last week, there is a discussion to be had about pragmatism and whether it means what we always thought it meant. Uh, We brought it up as being relevant to the philosophy of Marcelo Bielsa uh, in the Leeds episode uh, seven days ago, but we plan to only briefly touch upon it because of a Jonathan Wilson column, which used Pep Guardiola as a starting point that... I felt might hang as a little too much of a heavy shadow over our conversation as it was written just a few days previously. Now, though, a week later, it would appear that we don't care anymore. And the animus between Smith and Wilson has had another week to fester on this particular occasion because the former says that he had the idea first. Given that the latter will not have the right of reply, I will at least offer up his opening sentence or paragraph indeed from said column as at least an opening gambit. He says... There is perhaps no word so misused in football as pragmatic. The tendency is to deploy it as a synonym for defensive, cautious or gritty to be set against the attacking flair of the idealists. Coaches are divided into two groups. On the one hand, the pragmatic Sam Allardyce, Tony Pulis, Neil Warnock, and on the other, the idealistic Marcelo Bielsa, Pep Guardiola and Giampiero Gasparini. But it is rarely so straightforward as that. Thank God for that, because we're going to be talking about it for half an hour. Helpfully... This copying and pasting from the Guardian website helps reduce my work. And so I shall now yield the floor to the apparently wronged Rory Smith after restating today's subject, which is pragmatism. Does it mean what we thought it meant?
1: So to be clear (laughs) in the course of recording last week's episode, which I did in my kitchen, as my internet connection is dodgy in my office, um, Kate came in to make a cup of coffee and after two or three minutes, making the cup of coffee parted with the (laughs) words, do you ever let anybody else talk? which, I'm not going to lie to you, <laughs> stun
2: just a little bit. Oh. It, it cut deep.
1: It cut, cut really deep. So I'm, I, my new persona on this podcast is is Kurt. That's what I am. I'm going to be Kurt.
2: Don't be Kurt, because there's no Steve. And uh, I'm gonna while talk he goes little, he makes it last long. So, you I'm know, to fill in the gaps. I'm going to talk <laughs>
1: exclusively in bullet points. Um, there is no animus between me and Wilson. That's a lie. He's that a means, good friend of means mine. there is, you. And there to is. be honest, Clear. Yes, he if has it to had say occurred it, to me... He? I bet we should have we should have asked him to do the podcast and come on and talk.
2: It did occur uh, to me as well, but I didn't want to get you to, you know, arguing no, about fine. who had the idea first. Uh I think he listens. If he's Jonathan, if you're listening and you want to come on, just let me know.
1: Uh we we will not pay you. Uh the <laughs> the other thing is there's no idea, you know, there's no-fancy
0: an Allen key though. We can uh, we can yeah, so, certainly sort that out. You want the Jordanian like, Allen yes,
1: key. Got just one, not a whole set. <laughs> Don't be a ridiculous, Change. Um the and the other thing is that there's no kind of ownership of ideas. Like you can, lots of journalists have the same idea all the time. But in this case, I did say it on the radio before Jonathan wrote it. So <laughs> probably shouldn't be taking inspiration from me. But I think he's, he is unsurprisingly correct, given that it's my idea. And I think we do miss, we deliberately misuse the word pragmatism. Mm-hmm. It, it does mean, in the football sense, just as makeshift is an exclusively football word. Pragmatism is used as a synonym for cautiousness and defensiveness and being solid at the back and banks of four and not not overplaying all that stuff. But pragmatism is is that's not really what pragmatism means. We have words for that stuff and it's defensive and cautious and blah blah yeah. blah, and aggressive and all all that stuff. What Risk pragmatism? Averse. What pragmatism means in a kind of philosophical sense is. Believe in something? Does you think it will be effective? So the the definition that I've got on the internet is an approach that evaluates theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. Mm-hmm. Now I happen to believe that quoting the definitions of words is the worst thing a journalist can do, apart from quoting George Orwell. Both are entry level. Just stop doing them. But in the interest of being pragmatic about this podcast, I think we need to have that definition nailed down. If you take that as the definition, then it has no. there's no reason it should only be applied to a certain type of football because, and Bielsa is the best example of this, although there are plenty of others, Bielsa plays football that way because he thinks that is the most effective way to play football. He doesn't do it because he thinks it's aesthetically important. One of the brilliant things in Tim's book is, is you realise how much there's this idea that Bielsa doesn't care about winning, whereas all he cares about is winning. He wants... Some of the scenes where he kind of grabs players by the by the lapels and shakes them for not realizing how much it matters, where he kind of goes in, into these sort of gloomy funks for losing a game, and where he he you know he can barely sleep. He's this kind of manic figure because he wants It's not just he wants his players to to redefine the beauty of the game. It's just he really wants to win. Like he. He wants to win as much as Mourinho or Allardyce or Deitch wants to win. And he just happens to think that the way he plays is the best way to win. What he does is inherently pragmatic. It's it is just as pragmatic as any other form of football. And it's really strange to me that we 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 have drawn this line, this totally like theoretical line between pragmatism and, and, and no, no
0: one seems to have questioned it. It's kind of yeah, no. it's
1: defensive and boring football.
0: No, no, pragmatism has never, even when I played, we played to our strengths. When I was at Everton, the greatest example of it, we, we played when we could play. We passed the ball really well when we could. But the, again, it was a means to an end. It was a means to an end. You play long if that gets the the, the best out of the players that you've got. I, I never, ever saw being pragmatic as being defensive or boring, even when I was playing. And that was a long time ago.
1: Do you think it implies that... that, Or do you think it belies it a belief... It's to beat
0: coaches with, isn't it?
1: Well, I was going to say, do you think it belies a belief that coaching teams to defend well and be solid is easy.
0: Well, I, how many times I must have said in commentary, they're a team, that, they're not a defensive team. They're a team that defends well. And there's a huge difference in that. There are defensive teams who sit behind the ball and basically just boot the ball up and wait for it to come back and defend again. Well, there's teams that defend well. There's a huge difference. Neil Warnock, again, he's, there's a game I did, a Middlesbrough game recently against Blackburn. And I had to make that point because they should have won the game and finished nil-nil, but they actually defended really well, but they weren't playing defensive football. But because it's Neil Warnock, and it finished nil-nil, oh very pragmatic, very boring, very defensive. It wasn't like that at all. That's not how that game was played. It's not how he plays. He tries to play the game.
1: Often I think that part of the problem is that is that we when we evaluate a game, we, we almost forget there's two teams in it. And often you have a game that ends with ends nil-nil, say probably the easy, the easiest example, where one of the teams has been extremely, de- seems to have been extremely defensive. And it's assumed that they meant to do that. Well, they've been and forced. Been no forced one to be defensive, yeah. ever stops to think, well, actually, maybe the other team didn't let them attack. Sometimes you can only play as well as the team you're playing allow you to. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's not and a criticism
0: of you. That's actually they're better at the, at the game today. They actually got one over on you. So you have to, again, you have to do whatever's necessary to get even a point in the game. So you have to change the way you
1: approach it. And at the risk of indulging my usual vapidity dressed up as profundity, I do wonder whether that's because two as great fa-
0: words there, by the way. Once as fans, well
1: done. as fans, thanks, Chinch. We I like
0: words with itty at the end. Really good stuff.
1: Back uh, on the city. <laughs>
0: Pity. No, that's no, come Pity. now Come on, come on. You're dumbing down now.
1: But I wonder if it's just as fans. We, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <I'm> <laughs> we assume that our team has agency. So if you're if you're a Plymouth fan and they're playing Torquay, to choose two teams that will not sort of spark a huge kind of response of of anti-Devon bias. The, I don't know, is is Plymouth in Devon? Yes, they're both in Devon. They're both in Devon, yeah. yeah. Is that a derby? Plymouth-Torquay? Massive. Who else are you going to play in in Devon? Good question. What else is in Devon? Exeter? Tiverton. Tiverton. Could be Tiverton. Anyway, if you got Plymouth-Torquay... they are slagging off Devon like this. There's going to be, they're going to be marching. Listen. Is it
0: the M5? Marching (laughs) up the M5 with flaming (laughs) torches and pitchforks. I think they still work with those these days down in Devon.
2: Oh, I've done it again!
0: (laughs) Sorry, Devon. Apologies. Great
2: cream cheese, but I've done it again!
1: There's no motorways in Devon.
2: No, the the M5 stops well short of any of the places we're talking about.
1: But if you have Plymouth Torquay finishes 0-0, and Torquay have done all the attacking, Plymouth have done all all the defending, the... The Plymouth fans will assume that their team chose to do that because they ultimately believe that the the destiny of each game is in Plymouth's hands and the Torquay fans will assume that the destiny of each game is in Torquay's hands, which is why when teams lose, we tend to, you know, when when a team loses, you blame the team for losing. You don't think, well, actually, do you know what? Maybe the other team did this, this and this and and Mm -hmm. beat them and and that's why why that happened. It's always individual mistakes or tactical failures or what the manager should have done should you have made changes earlier or that stuff. We assume that our team has ultimate agency that's probably the the definition of fandom is that is which team do you think is in control of everything of its own destiny, which team uniquely do you feel is in control of destiny? And it is interesting that whenever, whenever a team is really defensive, it's always assumed it's a conscious choice, but it's often it's not, it's just the situation that has unfolded in front of them. And that's what they've had to do. So yeah, Neil Warnett's teams and actually it applies to quite a lot of those, those kind of inadvertent commas pragmatic managers that, it's not so much that that's necessarily how they want to play, although I have a theory of the Allardyce that we could maybe come on to a little bit later. It's that they're they're often at teams who kind of have to play that way in the games where you see them. So if, if you mainly watch Burnley against the big six, they probably are playing that defensive football, that pragmatic football, but that's because that's all they can do because the other team are also on the pitch and also have agency
2: you could define the, the the ill definition of pragmatism based on whether you are watching a game and that team has agency or not. So for example, if you are watching a, watching a team like Manchester City, you will assume that that team, because they are better, have agency and they are enacting their philosophical footballing beliefs on that game, almost in a vacuum, regardless of the other team. But then you watch a team who is not being proactive, but reactive because they are having to respond to that other team, they are labelled as pragmatic. So you are either watching a team who seems to be having the agency on a game of football or a team that doesn't. And the team that doesn't is called incorrectly, as we've been talking about, pragmatic.
1: I was we... listening, but I was also being sexually assaulted by a dog.
2: All oh, right, Sexually assaulted. Yeah, Hector, Hector, Hector's, Hector's it is after dark. The oh, mind Hector's,
1: Hector's, um, Hector so has c- taken take, take the, the podcast after dark, literally, and is now humping my leg.
0: So, Oh, God, it's hard to... Oh, a, would you would you like me to repeat any of no, that? No, no, it's fine. No, a well
2: reasoned no. thought.
0: If, if if Fulham are playing Manchester City, are, are we saying Fulham fans are saying the twenty five percent possession that our team are having? That's that's what we plan to do in that game. Not the fact you're getting totally and utterly dominant. You can't seriously be but saying none, we're in charge none. of this. Right none. to
2: to to put that that um, perfectly well-reasoned thought into something slightly more practical. Manchester City play Fulham and Fulham are well-known as being a team who would like to play with the ball and have a certain philosophy enacted by Scott Parker over the course of the last year and a bit, which is... It's parkable. It's it's (laughs) parkable and it would not be considered to be pragmatic. However, if you are Manchester City playing against Fulham, the pragmatic team out of those two would probably be... Fulham, because you're not going to have any of the ball and it looks like you're just trying to play for a nil-nil. But if Fulham are playing a team, for example, from the Championship in the Cup... And they are expecting to have most of the ball. They would not be considered the pragmatic team, even though they are enacting exactly the same philosophy in exactly. both matches.
1: And crucially, both teams in both situ, all teams in both situations, are being equally pragmatic. So Man, Man City play Fulham and have all the ball. Fulham set up as you know four five one whatever, and are described as being pragmatic for that occasion. Chinch is right. I don't think their fans would assume that's what they wanted to do was to have twenty five percent of possession. And it's interesting, actually. I wonder how much the the dominance, the, the, the split between the haves and the have-nots, the, the, the absolute elite and everybody else is changing the way we perceive the way our team plays. But both of, both Fulham and Man City in that in that situation are being equally pragmatic. So Fulham are, are playing the way they have to to try and survive, to try and nick a result, whatever the, the plan might be. But Man City are being pragmatic in having the ball, dominating the ball, because that is what Guardiola thinks will lead, is the likeliest route to victory. But also that having the ball in Guardiola's conception of football is the most cautious approach. There's a, the, the best way, I think, of understanding that the Mourinho-Guardiola dichotomy. There's that great quote in Diego Torres's book from Mourinho, that the team who has the ball has the fear. And what he means there is that if you, if you have the ball, you can make a mistake and we, we'll punish you. So you're, you're worried. So we don't need to have the ball. We just need to have the potential to make a mistake. Guardiola wouldn't go along with that, but his desire to dominate possession is is based on the idea that the team that doesn't have the ball can't hurt the opposition. So he keeps the ball because it's a way of keeping himself safe. His teams want the ball because it's a way of keeping their goal impregnable.
2: And and the high line is because he wants the ball and as, all far the as, be, as far away as possible. To, to, to quote books, Marty Perino says that that Pep Guardiola would describe himself as probably uh, not quite as declamatory as this, but as a defensive coach, because as you say, he is setting his entire philosophy up on the fact that he doesn't want something to happen. And so he is ensuring against that thing from happening by doing everything that he does offensively.
1: Yeah. And do you know, there's in lots of different ways, I think we, we, we read football, we kind of read football wrong, not necessarily wrongly, but like in the opposite way to how coaches want. So, If you think about Klopp's Liverpool, Klopp's Dortmund, that pressing style, that's based on on the idea that it's better not to have the ball. It's better if the opposition have the ball near their own goal. That's the best time for for a pressing team. That's the the ideal situation. The opposition has the ball near their own goal because that's the greatest creator. We think of, of Guardiola's football as being inherently offensive and beautiful, and it can be offensive and beautiful, but it's rooted in caution and defensiveness because if you have the ball, the opposition can't score. Mourinho's football is defensive and cautious, but it's rooted almost in an attacking sense. That caution is rooted in, in the sense of we can hurt them when they have the ball. It's all, um, to use the technical term, arse about tipped. <laughs> yes.
2: and, and, and the, the essence of, of Mourinho being like a caged tiger or some sort of fearsome animal ready to pounce. And that—that that is his the essence of what he is trying to do when he doesn't have the ball. Um, so exactly what happened in the Leeds game. If you look at the goals that Tottenham scored in the Leeds game,
0: Leeds gave possession away high up the pitch in their own half, and Tottenham two passes goal. So that's exactly what Marine. That's exactly what you were talking and, about. And against you're and most, against you're most risk when you're well. a possession-based team on the edge of your own penalty area, one stray pass, we, we're ready for it, and we, we score from that, and they win the game three 0 In but fact, if you look at the, the possession game. stats; they had the I think Leeds had like. 70% possession yet Tottenham score 3 goals and beat them 3-0
2: and and that that is what Mourinho Wants to do that is him being pragmatic in the old yeah. incorrect yeah. sense, but also in the correct sense. Um And yeah, he did it against Arsenal, did it against Manchester City, and he did it for all those years for Real Madrid as well, particularly in those successes against it's Barcelona. Just getting away from the concept of what people consider
0: pragmatism in football to be.
2: Yes, and the reason that we're probably having this conversation now is, and and if you if you Google Jonathan Wilson and pragmatism, you actually get more than one column uh, because he spoke about it after the the Manchester derby, which finished nil-nil and a lot of people were saying after that w- why was pep so defensive slash pragmatic um given how he that isn't necessarily how we see him as putting his teams out and it also harks back to what happened against Lyon in the obviously doomed quarterfinal lineup that he put out in August so the, the question now is that if we are saying that Pep Guardiola is in its very essence pragmatic because he is Producing a football team and a style of football, which he thinks will be inherently successful. How, how do we now then try and reconcile the fact that he is being called pragmatic in the old incorrect sense by on the odd occasion putting in a double pivot and having one extra defensive midfielder to try and counter the prospect of counterattacks, which of course is why he chose that lineup against Lyon and why he played that way against Manchester United because of recent results against them
1: that's still a practice there's, there's no harm maybe that's pragmatic. the problem his, his approach whatever it
0: might be with the personnel with the format his style of play is designed to give his team the best chance of winning to me that's what it is it's playing to your strengths and to me again assessing the opposition and what can hurt them best and what you worry about them i guess that that to me is not being that again it's, it's the getting away from pragmatism equally in defensive but the, it's not the, right
1: the thing with the double pivot that, that Pep's been doing, and, and uh, this has been a weird season. It's not a season for predictions, but it does look as though he's judged it kind of right. Almost in that City over the first half of the season have have kind of conserved energy. They've been a little bit subpar. They've not been quite as as breathtaking as they can be. They now, as we go into the second half of the season, suddenly look like they've got the kind of they've got the legs basically and the squad depth to to kind of ease away. They've got a really really kindly run of fixtures over the next three four weeks. Uh, through January, January and early February, and you want you do wonder whether Pep's have been building towards this, almost sacrificed the points early on so that his his team can can kind of finish strongly. Effectively, the double pivot is is a pragmatic move, because he thinks it increases their chances of winning by because it reduces their chances of conceding. But that's not a partic- particularly useful way of describing it. It it what it is is more cautious. There's no question that Guardiola City this year are more cautious. They are more concerned with. With making sure that they're not as exposed at the back, that you have that Rodri and and either Fernandinho or Gundogan double pivot. I think although Ruben Dias has looked really good since he came in, and and John Stones seems to be having a a bit of a, a revival, which is really nice to see for John Stones, because it does it does feel as though he's drifted for a couple of years, and it's a real shame for a player that talented. But you do wonder, as always in that in that situation, how easy how much that is to do with Ruben Dias being a sort of defensive Adonis. And how much it's to do with John Stones being completely reborn, and how much it's to do with the fact they're actually they've got a bit more protection in front of them. That's that's really hard to separate. It is more cautious, and no, no question about that. I think it looks to me like Guardiola's thought, right? We'll we will rebuild the, the spine of the team. We'll redefine the spine of the team to make ourselves harder to beat, and we will rely on the fact that we have enough attacking talent. Maybe not to score five or six goals every game now, but we can score two or three, and that's enough for this for this for the time being, and I presume there will be a second phase of that rebuild next season.
2: I think there is, therefore, some merit to the old definition of pragmatic in this example. probably. Because Pep Guardiola is is considering, if if you think about it, you're considering a macro and a micro. There is a game-by-game pragmatism. What is the tactic for that particular game? How best to win that match? And also, um, not being wedded to an ideology but considering how best to achieve that success. So there's, there's, there's that element, but there's also the the, the part that you spoke about, uh, Rory. There is a grander plan, which is different in its makeup this year, because you are having to consider the, the extra difficulties and the scheduling constriction that will mean that you are planning your 38-game season in a completely different way. So that, again, is arch macro pragmatism where he's thinking about march and april and how best to succeed when others might not be thinking to that extent of that time so you can maximize the difference between the the possible success and those others falling off and I know he's your best mate, Roy, but I spoke to Ilkay Gundogan just the other day and he said... Well,
1: Gunders, how is he? G- G- Cheating on me with you two clowns.
2: But he, he, he was talking about the fact that, yes, he played as a double pivot, but not, not that much recently. Mm-hmm. And so as Manchester City have flowered, if you like, in terms of getting back to the form that we perhaps expect of them more often... They've not, they've not been playing a double pivot. So it's it's genuinely like he has put in place the foundations for something, preparing for something that is different in the latter stages of the season. And he's almost got to that point already, even though we're only, what, 17, 18 games for, for City, as, as we speak, is only 15 games in. But you are in a situation where he has been pragmatically in the correct sense thinking exactly. about yes. how best to succeed not only in terms of matches and the tactics within those 90 minutes but also in the, over the long term and i think it's a very interesting example of the the kind of like the half paradox of what we're talking about the two meanings of pragmatic it's
0: yeah so it's understanding what exactly it means whether it be one game five games 10 games or a season trying to again get the best out of the players that you have playing in a way that enables you that gives you the best chance of winning individual games and winning competitions so surely that's not just saying, well, we get everybody back behind the ball and we just keep booting it up there and, and just defend for our lives. That, that's not what pragmatism is. So again, it's that definition of it that we have to understand. And that surely it was wrong back in the day. It was wrong and it's still being used in the wrong terms today.
1: I think a more useful phrase than, than pragmatic is probably, is probably something around fear. And the one thing that I would say about Bielsa's teams is I don't think they play with fear. City, Guardiola, as much as he's, you know, the best coach of his generation. Guardiola's teams play with fear. Mourinho's teams, very obviously, play with fear. Klopp, I don't know. Maybe not in quite in the same way, but I think there is fear. There is probably a degree of fear of what happens if the, you know we need to swarm you as soon as you've got the ball, so that you can't hurt us. That's probably rooted in some way in fear.
2: And just to very quickly jump in here, Rory, and go back to your very very first point, which was about agency and about how you see your football team through the eyes of a fan. To say that a football team has fear is considered by that fan to be a derogatory statement. And yeah, yet, as, we, as as we're saying it now, it should not be. And to have fear is a, a, an essential cornerstone of how you set your team up. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with it because look at all these teams with fear, all these managers with fear, who are incredibly successful. Yeah,
1: and you need to have fear because you need to worry what hap- you need to worry about what happens when the opposition have the ball. You need to have fear. That it's is sensible. That's- that's part of how you say it.
0: We, we live our lives in that way, don't we? Worrying about what the worst that can happen. So it's no different in, in life than in football, is it? Just to say that it's the word, I think the word fear.
1: Yeah, it has a It makes people think,
0: like, yeah. oh, that means our team are afraid to play or afraid to do certain things. No, I think it's if you used a different word than fear. And, and because that's you, what fans don't like.
2: Exactly. When you're a fan, because you don't consider the fact that there is another team on that pitch, you don't consider that they may have a threat that will lead to your team having fear. It's a
0: philosophical fear, isn't that. it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, the one the one team that you, you watch them and you think you're genuinely not kind of afraid of what they can do to you is Leeds. And I mean I was at the I was at Old Trafford when you when when Manchester United beat Leeds United by six goals to two. And it was really striking. I mean, it was a bizarre game anyway because Leeds could easily have strawed seven in that game. They had they had seven. They had channels.
2: 17 shots apparently in that yeah, game. Yeah, it was eight. And, and United only had 24, I think. So it was, it was fairly yeah, and, close. And
1: Man United's... Um, Man United's figures were slightly bolstered in the last... There was a little flurry with about 10 minutes to go where they had about six or seven shots in a few minutes. And that suddenly... Before that, it was roughly level, level pegging. And... There was a point in that game where you thought, actually, do not leads need to be a little bit more afraid? Is it's really obvious that that Man United can hurt them every, and are hurting them every time they go forward? And if anything, I think that's a maybe a, a more useful way of of posing the, BL, the, the dilemma that Bielsa poses us is not to say should he be more pragmatic? Because as we've established, by our standards, very quickly and very easily, he is he is being pragmatic. He's been pragmatic, and to be honest, the results of his pragmatism are there for you to see. That his team are mid table in the Premier League. That's pretty pragmatic. The, the, a team that, of this budget, you know, with, with these players, that he, most of whom he found mid-table in the Championship are now mid-table in the Premier League. That's pretty pragmatic. The better question maybe is, do, do Bielsa's teams need to have a little bit more fear? That, I think, is a more useful way of kind of examining... Well, what's examining really interesting the is,
0: normally as, as players, the, the fear kicks in individually, that if you keep playing a certain way and the opposition keeps scoring that you start to think, I've got to stop. He's telling me just to keep careering forward, careering forward as a fullback playing for Leeds. Would there not come a point where, or again, if you're not brainwashed, but again, if you're trained to play in a certain way, you just keep doing it. Whether the opposition are four or five, six, you just keep doing it. Because naturally you'd start to be a little bit more, hang on a minute, surely I've got to do a bit more defending if we're looking to keep out. But they don't seem to do that. You're absolutely right. I think maybe players of a a different level or a different experience maybe would start to question or change what they actually do during a game to maybe counter what's actually happening. So for players just to continue to do what Bielsa tells them to do, I find quite interesting as well. Maybe, again, that's championship players playing in the Premier League. I don't know.
1: I wonder, you know, if it's championship, not championship players, if it's players who are in awe of their coach and that they see what Bielsa has done for them. Yeah they see the progression they've made under his tutelage. They must feel that as well within themselves. They must feel that they are playing, you know, out of their skins. So they owe him this. Yeah. Well, I just wonder if there comes a point, and this applies not only to Bielsa, but to Guardiola, to Clark, to Mourinho, all these kind of iconic coaches. And we now have a cult of of the iconic coach. That's what everyone's looking for. I wonder if the players think that this person who's done so much for me is asking me to do this. My gut tells me it's mad. But do you know what? He's been right before, so I keep doing yeah, it. And yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And the other thing, actually, I wonder is whether more and more players of this generation aren't making the same judgment calls in real time that players of your generation would have done. That they are—they are so used to following instructions that going out onto a football pitch is not to express yourself. It is to follow instructions. That you, there they is no room for interpretation. In
0: automatons. Don't tell me that.
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't, but I think under under certainly, if you look at. <laughs> because i always
0: felt we you know back in my day we were just kind of doing as we were not not to the depths and the levels that the modern player would the nuances of the game the understanding of tactics we we, we kind of did as we were told um
2: but you that's so that's the
0: same thing as the players of today the Leeds players have been told so when we when we get the ball you do this you do this you do that you don't think differently you do what I'm saying What I'm I told think you to it's
1: then under certain coaches yeah I think if you look at kind of whether it's Liverpool's pressing patterns like when the handles that you have to run out to, to close players down whether it's man City's running patterns in attack if you it's really always really striking watching man City that that and you saw it there was a game was it would it have been last season or the season before when Guardiola was suspended And he he wasn't on the touchline and or he was sent off at some point. And anyway, he wasn't there. And you could tell the players were looking across to the touchline for basically for instructions, Mm -hmm. because they're not they've got so used to to having the entire game mapped out for them because of the part of the the ability of their coach and partly just the cult of the coach that they're not then I don't think players don't get the impression players make those kind of independent decisions quite so much anymore. I don't think if they've got an instruction. I don't think they're quite as willing to refuse to do that, it just because it makes no sense to them. Would
0: that have been the case at Barcelona with Iniesta and Xavi? You look at what I would consider high-quality players who who make decisions for themselves. Would it have still been the same there? Again, was it the same Pep Guardiola there? You do as you're told. You do this when we have the ball in these. Or were their players slightly different for those players or not? But I think
1: I think they were also drilled in that same school of football that the yeah. that the decisions that Xavi and Iniesta would have made would have been the decisions that Guardiola would have made. Okay. I think the that you know they all came through that same kind of. Theoretical Cruyffian background, so the way they viewed the game would have been entirely yeah yeah know, in, in, in in individual inst- instances maybe yeah maybe Iniesta would have turned once more than Guardiola ideally likes him to. I'm not talking about that kind of that kind of level. And obviously, not not all play all these players don't always make the right decision as just as their coach wants. But I do think the game has become more automated under those kind of yeah. super coaches.
2: It's, it's also why you you hear sometimes that the, the need for a new voice as well because they might be iconic coaches, but they are intense coaches who will speak a lot and repeat quite a lot to those players who might eventually grow tired of that message or the way that it is delivered. But that's and why
0: players like Mesut Özil and, and Deli Ali find it hard to find a place in a team these if days you don't because have that, the coach is a yeah. drill. This is how we play. You play this position. This is how you play. If you don't do it, you don't play.
2: If you don't have that inherent trust, then it's, yeah, yeah. it's very difficult yeah. to to have that kind of schooling. Uh, just before we finish, um, if we have, as Rory said, for our, by our standards uh, quite easily come to a conclusion about how managers are pragmatic when they're not considered pragmatic. What about those managers that are considered pragmatic? The likes of, as Jonathan said in his piece, Sam Allardyce, Tony Peelers, Neil Warnock. We, we've spoken about Neil, Neil Warnock briefly, but bearing in mind that Sam Allardyce has just re-entered our lives. And Rory, earlier you said you wanted to say something about Sam Allardyce. Is, is he a pragmatic coach because he believes that the way that he does things will eventually lead to success?
1: Yeah, basically, I think he is different. <laughs> they're all equally pragmatic. I mean, they're all pragmatic. Very. But, I don't know I don't because have they managers. have been
2: successful, so they must. Yeah, have, I mean, I definitely.
1: don't have any money. Well, Sam
0: Allardyce's yet. Bolton team pragmatic. Well, they're all pragmatic. Yeah. But yeah. again, they they surely they were using pragmatism to, as a stick to beat these coaches with to say you play boring defensive football. Is that why those those coaches are kind of bracketed as pragmatists?
1: I don't know if it's necessarily a stick to beat them with, though. It, because it it can, it's often used as a form of praise to say that you need to be more pragmatic. You need to be more like. Sean Dice. but with
0: with with Mourinho, yes. But is it is it a form of praise for Tony Pulis and uh, and
1: Sal? I don't. Surely it, it can't be. It can. It can be either. My theory with Allardyce is the same as my. And we we must we must have done this a million times. We've done like four thousand episodes. I must have walked you through my theory of management self-indulgence before.
2: Well you start it and if you if if it's something that we've heard before we'll, we'll stop set a
1: that. klaxon off if we've heard <laughs> it. before. Yeah, so all managers reach a point where winning is less important to them than being proved right.
2: Right.
0: <clears throat> well, I, I, I just wanted um, to make the claxons. <laughs> <out. laughs>
2: no, but this, but this is also true. This is also true <laughs> of Jose Mourinho. And the final reference I'll make to Jonathan's piece is that he actually talked about the arch pragmatist Jose Mourinho persisting with something that doesn't work, therefore not being pragmatic at all and being completely wedded to your own ideology, d- to the detriment of the team that you are attempting to win with.
1: Yes, but all, all managers. It's true of Mourinho. It was true of Wenger. True of Benitez. True of it's probably true of Guardiola. It's probably true of Klopp. That they that they they will all or all have reached the point in their careers where they whether they know it or not, their like deciding, determining, defining characteristic is that they want all the stuff that they stood stood for throughout their career to be proved right, even when another path might lead them to trophies and success. That's less important than, than their own sort of self-validation. And Allardyce, i thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks with Allardyce. Allardyce's Bolton team was a little bit more multifunctional than the, the football Allardyce has produced in recent years. So his but players. Think, but Yeah, but then, it, you know, it, this it, Sam Allardyce was not only was like a, a pioneer in terms of, of analytics and data usage and stuff, so in, in a sense, he's actually a really forward-thinking manager, but he was also able to find room for jj akotcha in his team. now i'm not convinced that sam aloniz now would get jj akotcha into one of his teams or the modern equivalent of jj akotcha. the i don't i think he has been, he has refined his football down to its very base level because he's been stung by the criticism the allegation that he that he couldn't he can't coach a different style, he can't do anything different. he's become so determined to prove not only that he's a brilliant manager and he should have been given the inter milan job. But to prove that he's actually been doing it right all along, that he's lost sight a little bit of the things that made it work in the first place, and he's he sort of boiled it down to its bet to its barest essence, and its barest essence is is just uncut. And I think I think the conclusion this of this discussion is probably we have to retire the word pragmatic because it's meaningless. <laughs> yes, but he has boiled it down to to the bare kind of fundamentals of light. Like, aggression and get the ball forward early and flat back four and strong defense and good in the air and big lads and all that stuff that's he, he's also he's, the jobs he's been given recently he's basically going in and fighting fires isn't he so the first is, thing but, you have to but
2: do. he well, has well, been successful that, does
0: that then determine how his team how he feels his yeah. teams have to play
2: yes yeah, but it, it, yes yeah initially but again, it's still but not, pragmatism in, but, initially, but he hasn't but yet long been, term he's if never he has it. been brought in to do those things Chinch. he has Mm. been successful at doing them yes yes so isn't he therefore again eventually by way of the slight self-obsession that you speak of rory eventually getting to the point which proves that he is successful and therefore pragmatic even if we don't necessarily like the the, Mm -hmm. the narrative arc of each individual story he's pragmatic in the sense that all managers are pragmatic on that bombshell <laughs> it is time for never Mind jack and Ori, what a soccer story this is what andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel worthy details removed
0: i'm gonna do something slightly different here because around the world everybody should know i'm sure everyone has a copy <laughs> of the latest jack reacher novel the sentinel which i've read it it's an absolute
2: dream of a read it can works on so in, many levels zoom in on rory's bookshelf behind him can we I see d- the copy is, of is the it sentinel? in
0: there uh, in the life of i, I, can, I can assure be, you is, this this is it is, gonna this be is. in there tripwire is tripwire in there no no I, have you got any reacher
1: i don't have any fiction in this right. bookshelf. you give oh, me really? the bielsa book i will give you no thanks be the first <laughs>
0: jack reacher or the latest no. jack reacher but anyway really? the sentinel written by Lee Child, and for the first time, Andrew Child, who's going to be taking over writing duties. Now, the book is an absolute belter in every sense of the word. Reacher thrashes, (laughs) thrashes and kills many, 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 many people, men and women, thankfully no dogs or small children. But the story, again, it's, it's about American elections. There's so much in this book. It's absolutely tremendous. But the most important thing, at the end of the book, there's a page that says there's a competition that they're going to run where your name, your name can appear in a Reacher novel. So I want to appeal to all our foolish listeners. How many, how many of us can send in the name Rory Smith? Oh, come on, this not competition? Me. Yes, it's got to be you because you hate Reacher. <laughs> and if Reacher came across you in a dark alley, there's only one winner there, buddy. So I think we should try and get Rory Smith's name. If we can, I don't know how we would do this. Have we got any techno geeks out there that we can flood this competition, this this website, with the name Rory Smith, and actually get him into? I don't know what kind of character he'd be. Oh, he'd be pathetic, wouldn't he? He'd be like a, a a weaselly drug dealer that you know Richard would snap his neck on the first couple of pages. But still, Rory Smith would be dead in a Reacher novel. So can I appeal to all our listeners? There must be a way. You don't have to buy the book, but I urge you to buy the book and read it. It's tremendous. But if not for anything else, buy the book, see the competition page, and enter the name Rory Smith, and it, we can make this happen.
1: I, I would echo that call, but would urge you to to enter the name Andy Hinchcliffe. Uh, I
0: mean, yeah, but I've got a worldwide fame. It's clearly not going to... It's like putting... I don't know. It's like putting Barack Obama in there. It, it wouldn't work, would it? You know, it wouldn't be like a... A drug dealer called Barack Obama, and it wouldn't. It's similar if you put me in there, it's just not going to work. People say, Wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not a normal name. That's a superstar. I'm just trying to say it's a notable name that it will jump off the page. I mean, Corey Smith is kind of, you know, (laughs) yes, you know anything you know big big names you know Gary Neville it's just going to leap off the page that's not credible Rory Smith is kind of just a you know it's just a non-entity it could be anybody so this is why I feel it could work it really could work what I also did what I did I went back over the the previous Reacher novels and I tried to footballize them not sure that's a word Nostalgia size, was that? Did we say that was a word No, we decided not? that wasn't a that word. That wasn't a word, but f- a football size. One, two, three, four, five. There's eight of them here that were really well. Um, do you want me to go through
2: them? Doesn't I've he, done some work on them. He has, as a Villa fan, mentioned yeah. some characters' names as Ashley Westwood as villa, Yeah, I, I tend to which do is that. why but, Andy Hinchcliffe might not be allowed. I'm not sure
0: Rusty Rutherford it. from the Sentinel was a, was a free-scoring attacking midfielder, though. Not sure anyone called Rusty has ever played football at the highest level. But anyway, what I did, I went through the the Reacher books. And of course, there's one shot, which speaks for itself. Uh, You have the Midnight Line, which becomes the Midnight Linesman. Uh, Blue Moon, which again could work in its own right, but blue over the moon. Better Off Dead becomes Better Off Dead Ball. Uh, A Wanted Man becomes a Wanted Man marker. But my my favourite one, uh, my, my piece de resistance, is Die Trying becomes Dire Trying. Eric Dyer trying so you can see. So that appeal goes out to our listeners. Please, please, please. Let's get Rory Smith's name into the next, if possible, Reacher novel.
2: There is actually a web address that I can read out for you from the book that you mentioned, The Sentinel, www.jackreacher.com forward slash win your name. Jackreacher.com forward slash win your name. Just yeah, pick Rory Smith, Roderick Smith.
0: He's not going to be the arch criminal, is he? wouldn't roderick
1: roderick smith uh, is not too obvious roderick smith would be like someone who commits some sort of horrific sex offense and it wouldn't be funny
0: <laughs> that's not <laughs> going to be in a reacher novel it's got higher standards than that the standards of i don't writing,
1: know i've never following. read any of them all i know is that what, what whatever context my name will be in it, it, it will be a badly could, written one
0: how can you criticize something you've not read
1: i've i've listened to enough of your excerpts chinch <laughs>
0: Oh, actually, that, that was from The Sentinel. I didn't realise when I read The Passage again. Yes. The Rusty Rutherford and the, uh, the I think it was Detective Goodyear. I got him all wrong. I played him all wrong. Because in the end, he's a Nazi sympathiser and I could have got a different accent.
2: <laughs> a Nazi sympathiser. No, no, yeah. oh, sto- oh, I am not <laughs> want to give the story away. Oh, I give the story away. Uh, thank you Ginch uh, jackreacher.com forward slash win your name keep your correspondence coming to setpiece menu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Andy and Rory and to you all for listening Stephen will be back from his jaunt to Burnley next week and we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed
0: when Steve said he was going to did he say he was going to the game or just going to Burnley no he's going to Burnley he, he just wants to go just, to
1: Burnley just, he just likes driving around Burnley does he there's a really yeah. good um... one way system <laughs> i was gonna say chinese out. takeaway on the way out of turf Moor. who's he doing nice. it for who's he done who's he done the exactly. game exactly
0: we don't know he's just said i can't be there to do the pod because i'm i've got to go to burnley but, but to be fair there's he's, game on.
1: he's had a full day of teaching hasn't he you know maths history yeah geography all the when subjects you say,
2: when you say full day do you actually mean an hour and a bit
1: he'll have done a full day Stephen those boys are they're thirsty for knowledge <laughs> thirsty
2: for knowledge they be th- if if he did more than that they'd be thirsty for knowledge about players of burnley after six weeks of steve they'll be absolutely parched <laughs>